Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. What's going on? Oh, my Hello. God. Hello. I just woke up. Yeah, it feels like uh, coronavirus. Uh, you know, what's we? it's okay. Listeners, full disclosure. We started recording this episode like seven months ago. And like, like 47 years ago, what feels like a billion years ago. And we never finished it because it required a lot of reading. And then the world exploded <laughs> and everything got a million times worse for everyone across the planet. Yes. But, but Chris, to be fair, also, we have the attention span of a lab puppy. It's not great. Really? It's not really. good. Between the two of us, it was like we we just forgot. <laughs> yes, probably. Squirrel! So, full disclosure. Yes. When we did our archaeology series on Schliemann, we said that we would move on from that guy who, if you'll all recall, was the rich butthole who decided to destroy Troy because he was like, I'm an archaeologist now. Um, and then move on to someone who actually was better yeah. at archaeology, yeah. um, Howard Carter. Yeah. Right, the guy that discovered King Cut's tomb. And then, like I said, the world exploded and the pandemic <laughs> happened and, you know, the world's a mess. So this next series we're going to do is on Howard Carter. Then we're going to do time travel. Which we promised to do in our last episode. Yes. And so it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And if you time travel back, you might be able to hear or forward. You'd be able to hear it. You'd be listening to it now. Oh, my God. I'm an idiot. Jake, roll the tape! (laughs) That was good. That was great. I am very excited that we are revisiting Howard Carter, who was an, an archaeologist of some merit and who was actually very interesting and had a very different background, I think, than... A lot of his uh, contemporary peers, including Schliemann. Yeah. I think he was much more legit. Oh, yeah. As the kids would say. He absolutely was. I mean, it's it's part of the reason why we actually know a lot about, you know, Egypt. And we don't know a lot about (laughs) Troy because Carter did a better freaking job. So for those that, okay, so for those that don't know, Howard Carter is most well known for being the person who discovered the tomb of King Tut. Um, But it wasn't just King Tut's tomb that he discovered. He discovered a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Yes. Which is really, really like his career, I don't think can be kind of overstated in its importance for building modern day archaeology. Yes, he is considered like one of the founders of modern archaeology of, of how to do a proper scientific assessment. Yeah, and there's and it's awesome because there's all kinds of fun Victorian characters in this, like um, 
like Harold oh Plenderleith and the lady Evelyn Herbert. <laughs> like there's all kinds, all kinds of funny stuff. It's so good. It's so good because just like on the surface, like he is the least Indiana Jones character ever. Like Howard Carter, I think, is sort of the antithesis of that, like of the swashbuckling, you know, the adventurer. He was much more, um, he was much different than that. But yeah, you have all these really awesome sort of stuffy sounding Victorian characters, which are really good. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, all right. Carter was born May 9th, 1874 in Kensington, England. And he was actually the youngest of 11 children, which must have been just super great for his parents. I um, mean, the fact that they gave him a name. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> and not just like, hey, you, is yeah. probably pretty. Well, but again, like, if you had 11 children in 1874 and they were all healthy and they all lived, you were also pretty wealthy. Or you were at least established, I would say, right? Like, you had other people raising your kids. Well, that or, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, the, the baby pops out. You're like, we're going to name this one, buh. They just <laughs> don't have the effort anymore. I don't care. I don't care who we call him. Um, his fa- so his father, interestingly enough, his father actually is an interesting guy on his own. His father was Samuel John Carter, who was particularly well known for some paintings or kind of drawings and stuff of animals that he did. Yes. Um, and specifically a successful artist. Yeah. And just but, crazy too. specifically at the time period, he was most well known for doing paintings of, uh, his wealthy patrons pets with them. So, like, he did paintings of, you know, um, like, rich people on their horses hunting um, hunting rabbits with foxes or whatever. Or, or no, hunting foxes? What did they do? Fox hunts? They hunted hunts? foxes. Yeah, they whatever hunted the foxes. Heck. Yeah, you know, but. With their dog, but right? Like, or the loyal the loyal dog laying at the feet or the, the yes. small cockatoo in the lady's lap. <laughs> right. So, it's kind right? of funny. He was, like, the first meme painter, kind of. <laughs> um, you know, the first famous Instagram artist for paintings of animals. Yeah, he um, basically was one of the first uh, one of the first influencers. <laughs> yeah. So interestingly enough, so so because again, it's eleven children. His father was a relatively well known painter for the area and the time period, but again, like not wealthy by any means, right? They're kind of middle class, I guess you'd say is maybe the best way of describing it. Although what middle class was in eighteen seventy four. It's different than what we think of it now. The middle class kind of didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Howard, the son, so the person we're talking about here, didn't really have a lot of formal schooling, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But his father trained him in art and kind of art history mm-hmm. and um, provided for him as well as he could, I guess. Yeah. You know, he, but he wasn't like he wasn't formally trained. And he right. wasn't, he wasn't a, uh, what you would consider uh, someone who had a, 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 a solid education or was a good student. Yes. Right. Like he didn't like, he didn't like to read books. He didn't like to focus and sort of sit down and learn. He liked to draw and he liked to paint. And so his father, uh, so Carter had, Carter as a kid was kind of sickly too. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is sort of interesting. He was like a little frail, sick uh, kid, I guess. And so he was. And at the time, I guess the thing that happened then was you were sent to live with your spinster aunts. 
Um, <laughs> Again, just a total kind of a cliche. Yeah. So he right? was so he was cliche. sent to live with his unmarried aunts in Norfolk, and then he was given a kind of, you know, again, home education, which was not uncommon at the time for the gentry. Um, and it, But his parents really weren't gentry, so he had a private education, but, like, not the kind of – we're not talking, like, I don't yeah. know. It's like I think him and his family had proximity to affluence, right? So yes. it's like they weren't they weren't lords and ladies themselves, but they were sort of the that close of a proximity that they were um they weren't their patrons necessarily, but they still had some sort of um means of income and also some sort of network of connection because of that. So I think that that's one of the things that's sort of important to remember about about Carter and his life. Yeah. He know, wasn't, you know, he wasn't a lord, but like he somehow had some ins or his family had some ins. What's interesting, actually. So this actually like his early life really kind of reminds me not I mean, not exactly because my <laughs> my father was not a painter. Um, but so my dad, when I was a kid, worked for like a couple of years, worked private security for a really rich part of Staten Island called Toad Hill. And that really super wealthy part of the island has a private high school um, that all the rich kids go to, like all the super wealthy kids. Right. And we're talking like hundred million dollar homes like this is it's super, super wealthy. Right. Um, And one like the summer before high school or like a couple summers before my dad was like, oh, so and so uh, Lord Butthole Minton or whatever <laughs> thinks he can get you into the private academy here on Toad Hill. Would you like to go there, son? And it's like, no, yeah, cool. I really want to be like, I'm already the poor kid in my middle school. I definitely really want to be the poor kid in this super affluent school. That's what I want to have happen, Dad. Anyways, yeah. So it's kind it's, of it's it is like that. Yeah. And it's sort of like I think too the idea of you know you are always aware of that. Like even now, like you were saying. Re- relatively recently that's made very apparent but even i would say that it's it's even more because you could you clearly have, have other options right like you've gone on to do other things but it's like then there was much more limited uh limited outcome for someone who didn't have affluence or didn't have sort of that connection to affluence and didn't take advantage of it yeah absolutely uh so okay so Carter, kind of a relative, you know, not as rough as some, but not a great background. Um, but he gets and also kinda, like you. He had a hot temper. He did. He yes, had he a did. hot temper. Uh, he's Even as a young child. They talk about kind of his temper and his temperament. So he ends up going with his father to the home of some of his wealthy people. Right. Because, again, he's training his son in art. And so he's like, well, you should come with me to meet these rich people because when I die, you can paint their chickens or whatever, right? And so <laughs> you can paint Lord Lady, Lord and Lady Miffington's <laughs> chattel. Lord and Lady Miffington's chattel. So uh, his father still earlier getting coffee in me, trying to get it, get it going, get it going, peeps. All right. His father brings him to one important one, which is mm-hmm. a painting that he's doing for William Amherst of Diddlington Hall near Swaffham, um, which is just like Diddlington Hall. Do not want to go there as beautiful. a kid. Uh, beautiful. Is, is Good night, everybody. Is Diddlington Hall beautiful? Um, and, and so he goes with his father there to, right. to work with this guy. And while there, um, he's he is exposed to all of the Egyptian artifacts 
that William Amherst has collected over time. So William Amherst was kind of an early proto-archaeologist, or not archaeologist necessarily, kind of an Egyptologist or, or yes, he was an Egyptologist, an, an antiquities trader, and a collector, right? Like when you're an Egyptologist, especially then you were, you collected whatever you could get your hands on, and he had a, a pretty impressive collection. Yeah, and so what ended up happening essentially, so this family kind of lived. They weren't very far. They were sort of, you know, whatever, within walking distance, at least, right? Um, although, again, what counted as walking distance back then is a lot different than now. Um, but so he would visit this family often and kind of become friends with them. And Lord Amherst kind of took a, I don't know, an interest, I guess, in the education of the young Howard Carter in his passion for Egyptian relics and Egyptology yeah. and everything else. Yeah. Well, um, and I think he he also sensed that he had an extraordinary intelligence and an extraordinary um, gift for details and understanding on for Egypt, right? Which was not which was for someone again who was not educated or uh, would be associated with someone who was educated and much older. But the kid was he was still a kid and pretty precocious with this stuff, and and obviously was very intelligent. Yeah, and so and interestingly too, I think that there was something. One of the okay, so one of the needs at this time, like you got to remember, there's no there's no photography, no. really at this time, right? No easy photography, so there's no way of getting all of these kind of what the tombs look like, what these areas look like, um, the inscriptions or the drawings, right? You got to remember, right. Egyptian is in is in hieroglyphic, right? The the kind of old, um, the old language of Egypt was hieroglyphics, and so. At the time, the stuff that's coming back from Egypt are kind of relatively poor recreations of those, right? There's drawings and stuff. And besides the antiquities themselves, it's hard to get a sense of what's actually going on over there. And suddenly into this guy's house comes in a kid who's been trained in art by this guy who you know is talented enough to kind of you are buying a lot of his paintings and stuff. Um, and his kid comes in and is like, oh, I'm interested in Egypt. Also, I can draw. Um and you're like, oh, this oh, is very well. This is perfect. Yeah. Like, let's get this yeah. guy over there to yeah. get back some good pictures or to get back some yeah. good images here that we can find. So yeah. Amherst arranges an interview for Howard with uh, Percy Newbury. And so this guy was, again, kind of an early Egypt- Egyptologist who was working at a site at Beni Hassan in Egypt um, and was specifically looking for an artist to go over there, take some drawings, and then bring them back. Yes. And so... Um, Howard interviews with Percy and is successful and becomes a trainee tracer. Quote unquote. And again, like what's crazy is he's 17 years old. Yes. Which still, you know, like, yes, kids that age were like had jobs and were working, but definitely would not be, would not be sent, sent to Egypt. And I think like the other thing too, to start to remember about him is he's, it's not just like he's talented at art. He has almost has like a, a photorealistic memory so he can replicate things very closely to how he sees them. And again, this is sort of like, this is a skill that you don't see a lot of people having even now. You especially didn't see it, you know, you wouldn't come across it um, just in your everyday life in Victorian England anyways. So it's a, a huge skill, a huge boon for for being able to capture this type of information. Yeah. So he goes over to Egypt with Percy Newbury again, and they were working as part of what was known as the Egypt Exploration Fund. 
Um, and they were working on Beni Hassan and El Baresh or Bersha. Um, and so this, these were essentially grave sites of the princes of Middle Egypt during about 2000 BC. And so again, he, his role really as a tracer was to, um, like Marie said, take these kind of photorealistic drawings of the the walls, the architecture, the buildings themselves, but also of the um, the hieroglyphics and the other kind of fine details. Yes, that would be of all interest. day, all yeah. day. That's all he did as a tracer. That's all the seventeen year old would do is like sit there and draw. Yeah, and so essentially, he becomes a he he. This becomes his career. Right. So he's he's invited back over and over again in what are called these seasons of archaeological digs. Right. Because you can imagine um, it, it costs a lot of money to go over there. I mean, it costs a lot of money mm-hmm. now to go over there. Um, it costs extravagantly more then. Um, and then to live there in this, you know, in a place without mass community telecommunication and stuff like there's just a lot of pieces involved in a lot of time, there's a lot of delta time between Mm -hmm. when they do something and it gets reported back over. Um, But essentially he becomes, he continues his work as an artist and tracer for this work. He also eventually does begin dabbling in photography um, and works. So he was initially Beni Hassan and El Bershir, and then eventually would go on to the temple of Hatshepsut and Deir El Bari, which is near Luxor. Um, And so in particular, this work of his that he's doing. And again, like if you look at some of his work to say that it's exacting and really um, impressive is, I think an understatement. Like it would be hard to do with, it would be hard to do with like tracing paper. You know what I mean? As as well well as he does with computers. Right. right? Now actually they have AI that can do things like this. But he was so far ahead of any of that. He, he was, was able the computer. To, he was. But <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, and the, the reason I keep bringing this up is it's like this shows this this personality difference, this very different person who I don't think normally would have had this uh, had this opportunity of his experience. But like a 17-year-old going over for weeks, months on end, doing one thing, tracing all day long until he fell asleep in the tomb. You know, he would eat there. He would, you know, he would go outside to go to the bathroom. He would go back in. He would trace. He would sleep. He would wake up and repeat. Like, I don't know of a lot of people that have that fortitude or that that drive to do something like that. Hmm. And it's just, again, it's just like this very different, very, very different personality. And he was doing it without, like, at the time, you know, they they had certain tools, like a grid or, um, you know, they, they had certain kind of, I want to say protocols, but probably not even that specific to try and capture this information. And he basically blew all of that away and even started to like innovate and redo certain things and like make suggestions. And he's a kid. Like these are people that are in their 20s and 30s, 40s, you know, like you can see the archaeology. seems like archaeology, could, you could, you know, weather it pretty well for quite a long time, depending on the money. So he's very young and he's sort of blowing all of this other stuff away. Mm-hmm. So and even to this day, really quick, I mean, to point out, like there's still some of the best examples of, of hieroglyphic, um, hieroglyphic messages and whatever from, from that time period. Yeah, absolutely. 
And it's, it's interesting too, I think. So you're, I don't know why when you were telling that story, I mm-hmm. immediately latched onto the fact that you, you mentioned that he went to the bathroom outside of the dig site. Maybe. Brain, Sorry. I was like, that's, I'm assuming so. I'm no, assuming it's probably, they didn't want them to, you're probably, right? Like, you're probably I mean, right. Think about, <laughs> I love how it's like potty humor. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ha ha, he poops. <laughs> well, but like, think about this. Like, think again, like think you are in a tomb. You are in the dark. You are in a small enclosed space. Like, there's a lot of people who who wouldn't be able to physically be in that space for more than a few seconds because it's, you know, it's 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 claustrophobic. It's cramped. It's uncomfortable. And what you're doing, and it, you also don't have what you maybe have some electrical lights, but nothing nothing of any real comfort, yeah. right? Nothing of any real, uh, you know, anything that's going to be helpful in a yeah. lot of ways. And this. And that's all this person does voluntarily. They're not slave labor. Like this is what this person wants to do and is excellent at it. And again, I think you're starting to see like this difference in personality. And I can only imagine like to get the times that, you know, that he would go outside would be very rare. Like to eat, you'd probably bring, have food brought in or whatever. But like they would probably either to answer your bathroom question, go there and bring it out in some type of potty vehicle or something like that i can't believe we i cannot believe we haven't done a whole episode on this um frankly all right so what on, on how people went to the bathroom and in, in uh archaeology day? they never show it in tv shows i think there's probably a reason for that all right anyways <laughs> so uh so okay but, but potty humor aside what yes. we're trying to paint a picture here of a guy who is really he's putting the work in he's taking his lumps right this isn't somebody who, like Schleeman, just kind of appears with a buttload of money he got in crazy ways right. and is like, and well, now I'm you. now yeah. I'm an archaeologist. I bought my way into archaeology. This is right. somebody who's working his butt off, right? Who's training, who's learning how to do it, and who's putting in really solid work. And eventually, that work will be... Recognized. Not Yeah, it'll be recognized, but at first it wasn't really recognized. This guy thought he wasn't necessarily going to be that good. But he, right. would, he would go on to work for William Matthew Flinders Pe- uh, Petrie. Or is it Petrie or Petrie? It's Petrie. Petrie. Um, and so this guy is considered to be, by a lot of folks, the father of modern archaeological methodologies and styles. So uh, he brings in, or, or Carter is attempting to get onto a dig with him, um, at Akhenaten's uh, city of Tel El Amarna. Now, for those that don't know, so Akhenaten, we're, we're going to have to go into a little bit of Egyptian history here, but so um, Akhenaten is actually a really interesting character in his own right, um, and is, he was known as a, so initially he was known as Amenhotep IV, um, but eventually would go on to be known as Akhenaten. Um, and what he did was essentially, so Egypt, Egypt before this point was completely uh, polytheistic, right? Mm-hmm. They had all these different gods and everything else. And then there was, there was of course the God kind of their version of Odin or their version of the ruler God who was Aten or the, the sun. And Aten wasn't really like one thing. He was three things. So a very, similar to like modern day Christianity where you have the father, the son and the Holy spirit, um, sort of a similar kind of concept where there was, uh, there was like the sunshine, um, the sun itself. 
And then there was like the sun uh, in theory, like it was, it's very complicated. Right. Um, but essentially what Akhenaten did was he said, okay, all those other gods are less than Aten and we should only be focusing on Aten. And so he went, he turned Egypt from polytheistic to monotheistic or tried to around this God Aten. So he did, he introduced what's known as Atenism. And that was not taken well by the people of Egypt. <laughs> um, and actually, exactly. and interestingly, his, all of his, everything about Akhenaten was lost because later Egyptian pharaohs, when they shifted back to, uh, when they shifted back to the polytheistic version of their religion, they got rid of any indications or, or talk of Akhenaten. They kind of stripped yeah. him from the roles of pharaohs yeah. as yeah, a way of, him. right. As a way of saying like, forget this guy. So they actually started calling him like, um, like that jerk, right? Like, like they would, they like cross out Akhenaten and just write like big old butthole, right? Like they, they really they were not good. Would, they actually did. They would like strike through anything that they found of his in, uh, in the hieroglyphs. Yes. Now, interestingly though, um, so anyways, and Akhenaten is the father of King Tut. Ah, um, uh, yes. 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 Uh, well, we don't know that for sure, but he's thought to be the father of King Tut. He was the, he was one of the, he was a pharaoh before King Tut. He was like, it's him and then like an uncle and then uh, his wife and then King Tut, basically. Um, all right. All so right, it's, it's, it's him, his second cousin, the guy who lived next door, <laughs> the guy who lived next door's daughter, who then married King Tut. No. Okay. Okay. I'm teasing. Yes. Teasing. So we'll we'll get into it a little bit more, but essentially this is what's known as the Amarna period in um, Egyptian history, and so this is going to be from the 18th dynasty to essentially the um, like the later half of the 18th dynasty, essentially where um, it's Akhenaten, the Nefertiti, then like an uncle, and then King Tut. Right. This is kind of that period of of Egyptian yeah. rule for these yeah. folks. Um, and with that, we are going to a break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. So at this point now, Carter is working um, under Petrie. Again, this guy super well-respected, really important in archaeology. Carter really wants to impress him. And he actually does with his work at Tel al-Amarna. Um, he finds a lot of important things, um, does really great sketches again on these artifacts and other things that they find. And so Petrie is impressed and decides to start training him to be an actual archaeologist. So not just a tracer, not just somebody who's kind of there at the digs, but someone who can lead his own digs. And at that point now, this is 1900 and Carter is 26 years old. Again, just insane. Yes. 
So he is apprentice. He's essentially becoming an apprentice under Petrie. Um, and so he does a 10 year apprenticeship with him and then um, is given or rather. So his apprenticeship is under Petrie and then he has to be given essentially um, what's the word essentially has to be given work. Right. Yes. And so yes. his work is given a government appointment um, and he becomes the inspector of monuments for Upper Egypt and Nubia, which is based around the city of Luxor. Yes. And this is sort of this is sort of a good appointment. Like this is a cherry gig in a lot of ways, as as viewed by um, back home. Absolutely. By sort of his 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 peers and his the the collectors and everything else. This is considered an appointment of some reward and renown and influence as well. And he's yeah. still he's he's very young to be getting this. I mean, he's being given essentially ownership of a bunch of other archaeologists. work. Yes. Right. He's being told that this is his job um, to make sure that these monuments are being looked after, that they're being mm-hmm. dug correctly and that he kind of can can direct some of that work, which is really interesting. Again, he's he's pretty young still. Right. He's pretty um, young. I mean, but this is still very colonial. It's like, of course, they want to they want to preserve these monuments, but they want to preserve them for the for the crown. Right? right, it's not because <laughs> the people of Egypt—they belong to the people of Egypt—and they're just safeguarding them for the people of Egypt. The idea is like, you know, the the monarchy and British rule is making sure that there's no looting. You know, there's so there's that aspect to it, but also he's there to make sure, like Chris was saying, that it's the dig and the um, everything is treated appropriately and with respect. Yeah, which um, he takes very very seriously too. Again, like. We should probably emphasize Carter is not a people person. He's not he he normally wouldn't be appointed to something like this. Was it not for his extraordinary talent? Because he wasn't a networker. He wasn't um, very good at influencing others. He was very stubborn and very hard headed, um, had very strong opinions, but was also just so incredibly talented that it was, I think, impossible for certain people to ignore that. And that's why they elevated him to this, to this position. Yeah. Again, he, he, he put in the work, right? He wasn't just slapping hands. He was slapping paved stone. So (laughs) slapping paved stone. So during this time period, he'll be introduced to a couple of other Egyptologists who will become kind of famous in their own right. So he works with Edward Naval, um, who is uh, Swiss and is kind of known for not, kind of known for having a hot temper, just like Carter, which is interesting. And they will also develop a really good relationship with Gaston Maspero, the director of the Egyptian antiquity service. So again, through his hard work, not really through his personality, he's meeting these folks and working with them. Um, And eventually that'll leave. So 1904, he's promoted to the role of the chief inspector of lower Egypt. um, And now he's in Cairo. So this guy is just having like a meteoric rise through yes. the ranks of Egyptology and, and archaeology in the area. Oh, yeah. So, again, just he's he is overseeing the safety, the dig, and sort of these, these monuments. Um, and it includes major areas uh, like Saqqara, which was, uh, it was an ancient netro- necropolis, necropolis, um, which was basically just this huge grave site. Yeah, I mean, it included like it, it just... Massive popular attractions, even then the Tomb of the Sacred Bull. It was the first step pyramid 
that they found in Egypt, which was significant because it marked sort of this intermediate step between um, regular graves and the pyramids that we're much more uh, familiar with now at Giza, which are the smooth sides. This was sort of the step pyramid, and it was called the ladder to reach the sky. Um, it was one of the most uh, one of the most important sites in archaeology, considered you know then and now. And yeah, and one and so one of the reasons why it's considered to be so important, frankly, is this predates the Giza pyramids, right? So this kind of represents like a continuous uh, building up of the way that pharaohs were were essentially buried. Right. So um, this here suggests so initially they believed that they were buried. Pharaohs were buried under a mastaba, which essentially was like a giant rectangular stone. Um, so it's kind of like a big just like a big grave stone, I guess, is how you describe yeah, it. Big right? rock. Um, yeah. But over time, though, it seemed to become they started building these sorts of stepped pyramids um, which you can kind of imagine how that would develop, right? Because you start off with these square stones and then it's like, well, I want two square stones. So now you have two square stones and, you know, you, you keep piling square stones on top of each other of changing size. You either get a, a pier, you know, a pyramid or you get like an obelisk or, you know what I mean? Like, it's not hard to think about how they would have ended up with that kind of pyramidal shape necessarily. Yeah. Um, but this was, so, a, yeah, this was especially significant. Yeah, so this was built in the 27th century BC, which is the third dynasty of Egypt and is under the ruler, they think, of Djoser, um, D-J-O-S-E-R. Um, it's considered still really the first large-scale cut stone structure in the world, and it has like six distinct layers, um, which are in a stepwise pattern, you know, and again, they're smaller on top and then they get bigger, so they kind of go out into that pyramidal shape, Right. Um, so, but you can think like what kind of, so 27 BC, right? So what else was happening in 27 BC at the time or 2700, I should say BC, just for some general idea about what was happening at this same time. Um, that's when Mesopotamia was like still having its early dynastic period. Yes. So this is extremely, extremely, um, What's the word? This is extremely early, right? Um, this is, you know, we're still talking like time frame where people are developing things like their own writing systems, right? Um, it's pretty interesting how how yeah. long ago this really was. <laughs> yes, and you can also imagine that at that time, or in 1904, it was also, you know, enough time had gone by that it was, it needed preservation, Right. It was a ancient site then and it needed it needed to be sure that it wasn't being ruined by just other other digs that were occurring, digs that were happening there or just tourism in general. So it was a very popular site. People were coming to Saqqara from as far away as Greece and Rome just to visit them, seeking a cure for like, you know, again, the health elements and also just sort of the idea of it. Um, that Egypt was this mystical place that had health or curative properties. So he had, Carter had a role in making sure that, you know, that he oversaw all of this and had to keep it, had to keep it safe, had a responsibility for it. And it was second only to the guy who put him in that charge, uh, Maspero. Yeah. Maspero? Maspero. Um, who was the head of the antiquities department. Yeah. So again, kind of, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point here, but I think it's kind of funny, right? So 
2920 BC is when Troy is founded. Yes. And there is like none of Troy left. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks to, again, Schliemann. This step mm-hmm. pyramid is like 2700. So only 200 ish years later. And it's all of those artifacts are still very well uh, preserved and intact in, in many ways or in many cases, I should say. So just again, to tell you like, you know, well, how much does the difference of Schliemann getting involved versus Carter make? Well, some of this stuff we still have and others of it have just been trampled by a moron. Okay, so, so then in 1905, uh, an incident occurred under Carter's watch at Saqqara that ultimately would change um, sort of his opinion of archaeology, but would also propel him to go forward to do his own thing. And basically it came down to um, there was a group of guards, Egyptian guards that were in charge of monitoring and protecting the the site um, and a group of French tourists came and started to, um, I don't want to say rough up. The, <laughs> there was some sort of, they were, they were acting inappropriately or well, like desecrating this, the site somehow. Yeah. Like this is a, this is a tomb, right? right? This is a right. major tomb and a right. major religious site for another culture and society. Yes. And these, you know, these tourists are kind of coming in and like, yes, nothing you know, against the French no, so I'm just no, 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 no. But like, but seriously though, like, you know, these are wealthy, clearly they're wealthy people able to take a trip like this. Right. And they go to this other place and they desecrate it and act like a bunch of dumb. Well, yes. You know, they dummies. demand entrance. Basically they're drunk and they want to enter the tomb. Um, and the guards say no. And an altercation breaks out. So there's a small kerfuffle, a fist fight. One of the visitors actually strikes the guard. So they actually are provoked into fighting um, Carter is, finds out he arrives on the site and is, you know, is, is, uh, you know, basically insulted by the French as well. Um, and he, he sides with the guards, uh, because he recognizes that these people are drunk and they don't have, uh, the site's best interest, you know, in mind. And he basically says, he tells them off and he says that, you know, no, you know, he sides with the he sides with the Egyptian guards. So the issue with this at that time was that this would be in 1905 considered just a major embarrassment and a major faux pas within Victorian society. Right. Is it that Carter um, was siding with a bunch of uh you know, with with what was considered to colonialism as, you know, the barbarian, the native barbarian, and wasn't siding with the, or understanding or taking the uh, the mindset of the French. Essentially. And he, yeah. yeah. And he didn't handle it well. It wasn't like he was diplomatic about it, because as we've seen, he wasn't, that wasn't who he was. He wasn't diplomatic with people. He was probably pretty blunt, and they were very, very insulted. Essentially, this is this is like all those videos you see on like YouTube or Reddit where some rich person is in another country and then they do something stupid and then they're like, you know, give me my kebab, you know, and, and then they start fighting with somebody. Right. Like this is these are drunk tourists. This is a tale as old as time. Drunk, rich tourists go to another country, wreck shit up and then get put in place. And then they're like, how could you touch me? I'm a Frenchman. 
you know, this is, this is, these are, uh, what's the French name for Karen? Um, (laughs) You know, like this, it's just ridiculous. Right. And Carter, Carter is, he defends his people. He defends these people he's been working with. Yes. And essentially the French, not, not the French, but crisis. Yeah. Essentially like the government of Egypt is now in this uncomfortable position. And not only the, the government of Egypt, but the government of England is in an uncomfortable position where they have to sort of explain like, yeah, Carter, like, you know, yeah, but those are just Egyptians. And he's like, right. they're my people. Right. <laughs> like, what do you mean? They're just Egyptians. Like we're spending all this money to study their ancestors. Like they're whatever. It sucks. It's a sucky situation. Yeah. Um, and Carter, I think soon afterwards realizes that he has to take some sort of remedial steps to notify his government and to try and, manage the situation. But again, like it's not his, it's not his go-to, it's not his strength. So he does send a, an explanation to the uh, Egyptian British consulate general, uh, which reads in part, my Lord, I am exceedingly sorry to inform you that a bad affray has occurred today here at Marriott's house, Saqqara, 5 PM with 15 French tourists who were here in a drunken state. (laughs) Right, so there's 15 drunk tourists, which I didn't know was that many. Uh, the cause of the affray was started by their rough handling of both my inspectors and gaffers, which were the native Egyptian guards. And so gaffers, just to cut in, gaffers yes. are people that like make scaffolding and stuff. Yes. Both sides have been cut and knocked about, and I feel it my duty to inform your lordship immediately. So, um, you know, basically he's saying that, that, that he, you know, he was, he is saying that like, you know, we're, we def- we're defending them from damaging government property. Um, but ultimately he found himself on the wrong side of the class structure, right? Cause he was defending, he was doing the right thing. And, but you know, they weren't, they weren't interested in what that was. So, um, you know, the official, uh, the official opinion uh, was that the natives should have taken the Frenchmen's rebuke and beating and not retaliated, which, you know, now I think we can very clearly say is is BS. And I think that's what Carter was saying then too. Moreover, it was judged that the end result of consequent to Carter's rash decision to the guards had caused that, that Carter was actually the cause of more of the violence and caused the Frenchmen to be knocked down and injured. Yeah, essentially the, the argument was because he showed up and it was like, no, these people are drunk. Get rid of them. Mm-hmm. It was his fault. And they were like, well, you should have been. Essentially, they're like, you should have just let your men get beaten. Yeah. And let them do whatever they want. Pretty ridiculous. The, to, yes. Which <laughs> is ridiculous. Clearly ridiculous. Insane. Anyone who's ever been to a museum today knows uh, those those uh, museum workers, despite how nice they might look, they'll beat you to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he also so, you know, he. The people before who had put him in this position, Maspero, others, you know, that 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 they knew that they couldn't help him because they couldn't fight sort of his social structure. Right. And it's like so the antiquities department was, you know, kind of under all of this pressure now because he had taken this action. And he also Maspero especially understood that Carter was a 
what they called a complex personality at that point. He was he was very obstinate, <laughs> which is tra- right? a translation for he was a dick. <laughs> he was a, he was a bit of a stubborn butt. <laughs> well, and we'll get into this later, but it's like he definitely like he definitely took an action that again was very abnormal for the time. Like he anyone else could have been able to maybe sort of turn it around or see that, you know, okay, I have to change my, I have to, clearly I can't take this action. I'm going to get fired. Things are just going to get worse. I have to eat crow. And Carter was sort of like, "Mm, nope, I am not going to accept that I have done anything wrong. And so then that really didn't help matters, right? Which I, again, he did the right thing. I think it's objective to say he did the right thing. However, in that circumstance, it's like, that's not going to work. You're not going to be able to exist in the colonial system and do that. So, um, you know, they, they put in um, some of the powers that be put in a formal complaint against Carter and demanded that he apologize to the French consul general, general, right? So he that demanded that him personally eat crow to the French, uh, the French government. And he said, nope, I've only done my duty. And because of such, I will resign my post. And essentially... One one thing we didn't really touch on super hard was this was a time. So we mentioned Carter's kind of meteoric rise, right? That was met with a lot of annoyance. Yes. By other archaeologists. <laughs> yes. They were like, who is this young? First off, he's English. And there are a lot of French archaeologists there at the time, too. Um, besides that, he's given these plum rolls. Because he's friends with these people, but then in meeting the guy, he's kind of not super good to get along with. Right. Right. So people right. are like, well, what's going on? Like, how did this person become the head of like Cairo? Right. Who, how is he in charge of Saqqara right now? Um, and so everyone is ready. Like when he falls, everyone is ready to jump on the corpse. Yes. Right. Everyone is like, this is great. There's a power vacuum now. Everybody wants it. And because Carter is sort of, too stubborn and I don't know, politically. Oh, and I, yeah, I think this is a good point to time to get into it though. It's like from, you know, if you look at, and there's, there's writings about this now, if you look at his behavior and his actions, while they did not have a diagnosis diagnosis for it at the time, he, there's a good chance he was autistic. Yeah. During that time frame or for in the Victorians would not have had that medical diagnosis or at least or at least had at least had sort of some of the personality traits that today would have been seen as being kind of yeah. non-standard. Right. Kind of, yes. he, he was not he, he was not a uh, what's the word he was because like there's a pro there is an issue with like calling every genius in history autistic. Right. Like that's ridiculous. No, but. But that's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're doing here, right? He had, based on kind of reports of his uh, personality type. Yes. And also based on reports of his kind of how he liked to work. Yes. um, And everything else. His being autistic is not necessarily, um, it's it's not really that hard to say. He he was at least, um, he at least seems to have had Asperger's syndrome. Yeah. Or was on, yeah, was on the spectrum, spectrum. right? And and of course, like, autism is definitely a spectrum, um, you know, but yeah, it it seems like he was probably at least slightly autistic in some ways. But this Um, is amazing to me because I think 
you know, at least up to a certain point in the 20th century, 21st century, you viewed uh, the common belief was people with autism couldn't achieve to certain things, right? They, they're, they're never going to be able to, people that have problems um, with, you know, singularity of focus, with communication with others, you know, that they, they, they can't, they can't socialize or, or, you know, acclimate to certain things. They're never going to be able to do anything uh, productive, I think, which is sort of like sort of that, the, you know, the, the ugly myth that's, that I think is still out there. But if you look at someone like Carter and think, well, at the turn of the century, this person was doing this. And if he, if in case that is the, that's the truth and he was on the spectrum, he had, he, it is an amazing story. And it becomes even more amazing with what he was able to achieve after something like this. Cause even no matter who you are in what, in, uh, or whatever, you know, whatever your condition, something like this that he just went through would be a career ender. Like this would be enough to basically get you wiped clean from, from any sort of advancement, any sort of recognition, you know, basically you're, you're back to, you're almost back to being a tracer in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, this is not his, his fight with in like, you know, pantsing of the French archeology span movement was not a good career move generally. No, but like, Um, that's one of the things that I think is so interesting and that is like, uh, admirable about him is that he absolutely refused to compromise. He refused to compromise on, on so many things. And it's like, if you think about just sort of, again, Schliemann, who basically was all about compromise, was all about like falsifying, was all about like, uh, you know, sort of making the edges blurry. And this may have not been taken from this tomb. I might've just found this and thrown this in. Like, this is the polar opposite of that. And it's like, we're, history and our understanding of Egypt is, is stronger for something like that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Actually, we should really do an episode on like the history of autism. Cause it's actually really fascinating. It is um, fascinating. It's any- a fascinating character of it. Yeah. Anyways. All right. So interestingly though, every other major archeologist later on who wasn't trying to kind of make money or make, not really make money, but make a name for themselves off of the power vacuum that Carter left in his wake will come out later and say, this was all a bunch of, this was ridiculous, right? This was overblown. So actually this is from um, Flinders Petrie. um, This is from his memoir, 70 Years in Archaeology. He says, quote, for the first six weeks, my wife excavated at Saqqara, copying Mastabas, and had the Misses Hansard, Eckenstein, and Kingsford there. One Sunday, some drunken Frenchmen tried to force their way into her huts and were stoutly resisted by the cook boy. They went on to the official house and began to smash furniture and fight the native guards. Carter, then inspector, was fetched, and he very rightly allowed the guards to defend themselves till the police could come. The indignity of letting a native resist a Frenchman weighed more than the indignity of being drunk and disorderly in the eyes of the French consul, who demanded an apology from Carter. And again, the consuls at this time, these were like the governors of the colonial powers who were in these countries. Um, So there was an English and a French consul, of course. Um, With proper self-respect, Carter refused to apologize for doing his obvious duty. For this, he was, on demand of the French, dismissed from the service. This was perhaps the dirtiest act of the subservience to French arrogance. End quote. That guy, not a fan of the French. (laughs) Not a fan of the French. Uh, No. Interesting. But it's, again, like everything you read sort of 
marks this difference in Carter and Carter's behavior and his his unwillingness to bend to uh, what was considered like colonialism was the social norm, right? That was that was considered the uh, the moral ethical right was you shouldn't be standing up for native people. And he totally bucked it and did something else. Well, what's interesting too is the fact that in Petrie's recollection of this, it's also an affront to his wife and other yes. female archaeologists yes. that I'm sure was also looked down upon at the time of having females at the dig sites, right? We talked about that with Schleeman. Yes. Um, right. So it's sort of interesting that Carter was just being like an all around upright dude. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, not good. Mm-hmm. So anyways, after this, he he becomes basically an artist again, like, like Marie was saying, right? This basically sends him back to being kind of a tracer. Um, but nobody wants to touch him and nobody wants to give him money. No, no one wants to work with him <laughs> after this. Um, because again, you work with him and you get the French mad at you. And it wasn't until 1909 that that was kind of the case. And in 1909, he will meet the Lord Carnarvon, who we will touch on in our next episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Oh, good Lord. As soon as I have to uh, say something, I'm just like, I have to read it. I said his name like he's a giant (laughs) T-Rex. Carnarvon! I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.